This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend to help them find Out of Water also. Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. My name is Sam Caston-Smith, and I will be your host today. Joining me is Will Bushman, who is our Director of Student Ministries, who's here for color commentary and brilliant insights. And uh, both of us are have homes with sick kids, so we're both feeling a little congested, and our audio quality is amazing. <laughs> yeah, I'm always nasally anyway. Yeah, Sam will do his best to try to mute all the coughs we have during this, but <laughs> no no promises. Oh, that's just delightful. It always comes, and then it's like with a family of four, it, it manages. Nobody gets it all at the same time. It's like they take turns to drag it out it's as long two as humanly process. possible. Yeah. So you only have one, so. Yeah, and she can't move, so we just move her away. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Quarantine yeah, your baby Stick in her in the room. corner. <laughs> nice. Jokes. Nice. Yeah, send will at riovistachurch.com. <laughs> All right, so we are walking through the life of Abraham, and so we have been through two episodes so far, Genesis 12, and then last week we did Genesis 13 and 14. And so if I'm summarizing kind of what we've seen so far, you see Abraham who's launching into this new life of faith where he is... Uh, unlike Babel, you remember where they refused to be scattered, he's willing to go wherever God sends him, and he is wanting to make God's name great and trusting that God will make his name great rather than like Babel, where they chose to make a name for themselves, and Abram's looking forward to a kingdom that is founded by God, a city that's built by God rather than the people of Babel who wanted to build their own kingdom and do things according to their own desires. And so you see the kingdom of man set up against the kingdom of God, and Abram is going to be the patriarch who kind of is the the prototype of what a life of faith looks like. And it's why we call him Father Abraham, because he's our father by faith. And so one of the really, really great things is you see that this father of our faith, and the Bible's very intentional about this, is right out of the gates, you see his faith fail. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's, it's pretty awesome. So he gets called to the promised land. He finds a famine there. He's like, well, God has promised me children in the land, and both of them are barren, and Abram's going to mess up on both counts, as we'll see in his life. But in, initially out of the gates, he runs down to Egypt, gets into a big problem with his wife, You know, trades her into Pharaoh, gets really loaded up with wealth and possessions from Pharaoh as he's betraying his wife. And then he comes back home, and Lot and him get into it. They have too much possessions and too little land, so they consider their possessions more important than the relationship, and they decide to split. Lot goes to Sodom, where he gets invaded by these four major empires, taken off along with all of the Sodomites, which Will is telling me I should use the people of Sodom, (laughs) please, (laughs) rather than that word. And then... Abraham, who was unwilling to die for his wife, all of a sudden shows some courage and gathers 318 men. They go on a raid party. They capture Lot and the people of Sodom, and they bring them back home. And all of a sudden, this guy Melchizedek, and this is where we finished last week, this guy Melchizedek, which we are convinced is the pre-incarnate Jesus because 
Melchizedek means the king of righteousness. He's the king of peace. He's uh, the, the priest of God most high. Abraham's offering him a tithe. He's coming with the emblems of communion. There's all these things that point you to the idea that this is Christ, and he's giving God's blessing upon Abraham for his faith. But he's celebrating the fact that Abraham chased after the most wicked and a nephew who had just spat in his face and sold him for money. Hint, hint, sound familiar? Because Melchizedek, the pre-incarnate Jesus, knows a lot about that kind of heart that chases after the wicked and those who betrayed him. And so Melchizedek shows up, he honors Abram, but you got to remember, now Abraham is particularly vulnerable because in a sense, he's just told the king of Sodom, I will not take any of your possessions. And he has just done a raid party on one of the major empires of the world. And so we finished last week talking about Genesis 15, and the very first verse in this chapter is really rich. It says, after this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, and God says to him, do not be afraid, Abram. That's the most repeated command in all the scripture. Do you know that? I did, actually. It was actually from your class, I think, when I was a teenager. So. <laughs> and I but, quote that thinking it's true. That's true, right? It's I true. I say that. It's all over okay, the place. Good. It's all from angels, from the Lord himself. You're always finding him. Like his first words always in encounters is don't be afraid because, like, let's, yeah. I mean, if an angel is <laughs> coming to talk to you, it's going to be terrifying. So he always, that's like his intro line. Don't be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. And in that line, there's so much, Will. I'm your shield. I am your great reward. And that kind of that kind of summarizes so much of what we can find in the Lord if we allow faith to be our operating principle, right? Because what is it that he offers? Like he's our shield. Well, what does that mean? You know, we run to the Lord when we're, we're confronted with things in this world that are coming to attack us or threaten us, that make us feel insecure. Like that is, you know, you go, Lord, I need help. I need help. I need help. And here you have God who's coming to Abram in the middle of no doubt what's got to be like, oh, what's coming next? And God's like, hey, I am your shield. And just pause for a moment. Don't hear that. And think, you know, flippantly, like, okay, he's our shield. Like, what does that mean to you? He's your shield. God is saying, I got you. I'm not going to let things come and harm you. There's nothing that's going to reach you. You might face some bad things, but all of that is allowed through my hand for your good. And so you can trust that God is your shield. He's got you. He surrounds you with shouts of deliverance. He delights over you. He's got your back. He's a great warrior. He's sovereign over all things, and he is your shield. And then the other instinct that we naturally have is we want our life to matter. We want our life to result in something. We want good things. We So it's not just that we don't want bad things. Well, okay, he's our shield, right? Yeah. But we want good things. And then on that side of the equation, God comes and says, I'm your great reward. Mm. Like, <laughs> what more could you ask for? You, you don't just get blessings. You get the blesser. You, you know, this God who is infinite and almighty and all wise and his wellspring of love and mercy and grace and, and joy and peace and all of these attributes that he has stored up. God is coming and saying, hey, I'm not, I'm not giving you a reward. I am your reward which is a mind-boggling thing. So he protects us from the bad things by being our shield, and he gives us the good things 
by being our reward. And if we preach that to ourselves more often, mm. yeah. <laughs> we would we would find in him we have all we need. Yeah, I think it's easy here to be like situationally like Abram needed this. Like you, I come to the story and I read that. I'm like, well, that was really gracious of you, God. Like Abram could be in like real physical distress here soon. Like Abram's probably thinking more physical shield than I am in that moment. But then like you said, like if we do preach this to ourselves, there's things. Mm-hmm. Day in and day out. I mean, I'm not going to get mugged probably today. That's not what I'm thinking of. But there's all kinds of things that come into this mm-hmm. life where you're like, oh, I need I need protection. I can't mm-hmm. do this on my own. Like, And I think the cool thing is like a shield has to be close to you in order to be useful. That's good. Yeah. And I think that's, I mean, in both of these, it's God giving us himself, like you said, like mm-hmm. the personal presence of God being there with us day in and day out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, the Bible does this. It, it you know, Abram, like you said, he's worried about, you know, these empires coming back against him or what's going to happen to my possessions, physical threats. But the New Testament comes along and it says, you know, we don't just battle against the forces of this world, things that you can see or fear, armies and things like that. There's a spiritual realm. And to be honest, like, I think it's almost more stressful. It's it's the insecurities that you have. It's the fear that yeah. is the greater weapon. I mean, you think of FDR facing the Great Depression and World War II and all these things. And what does he say? You know, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Fear is powerful. It's crippling. It's almost worse than the eventual outcome of what's coming. Like, yeah. And so what this is saying is, no, 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 like not just for the eventual outcomes and the physical dangers, but everything you face, your fears, your insecurities, your shame, your guilt, all those things that want to come and attack you, like he is your shield and he is your reward. It's just wonderful. And so, but Abram is saying back to God in verse two, he says, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And so if you remember, when Abram first came down from Haran to the promised land, he brought Lot. And Lot, in a sense, was, you know, it's his nephew, but it was, in a sense, his adopted son. There was a plan like, okay, Lot, you're my guy, but now Lot is gone. Lot has gone his own way. And so the next one that would be in line is the head servant of his household, who's Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram is not thinking, like, it's a different mindset back in the ancient world. Like, he's thinking... My children, my my legacy, my family to go on, like if you're going to bless me and your promise was that through my lineage, you're going to bless the nations of the world, that's where Abram's hope is. Like, and I don't have a son, so am I just going to give this all to Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, you've given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Well, now God comes And he is going to start laying promises on Abram that, by the way, still will not be fulfilled for many years to come still, more than a decade at least. And so the word of the Lord came to him and said, this man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the heavens. Did you change versions again? No, I'm in IV. In IV 84, though. What, what, what the heck are you doing? That's the best NIV. It's in the Logos. You, what Logos NIV do you have? Just the normal NIV. I don't have 84. What the, uh, I didn't 84 know there is was way better 84. than the 2005. Are you in the two? Th- which one are you in? You, are you are you like messing with me right now? No, I'm dead serious. You have serious. a real like. 
1984. It's the only NIV option my Lagos gives me. You're cheap and you didn't buy the new one. <laughs> that that could be true. All right. I'm, but it also is better. I, I like it better. <laughs> All right. I'm going to find 84 somewhere on the web. <laughs> How different is the new NIV from the 84? Okay. What you just read. Um, the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars. If indeed you can count them, then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Yeah, that's close enough. Yeah, I mean, all right, keep going. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so verse four, it says, then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. God took him outside and said, look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And that's a wild, wild statement. There will be other places where, where he says, you know, that, that his offspring will be like the dust of the earth. And the idea of that is they will be so absolutely innumerable. Like you'll, you'll never be able to trace them out. The number is way too large. You're not going to be able to do a census. You know, the numbers are too big. And Abram goes outside back before light pollution and everything else. He's looking up at the sky and the stars back then, even more so than we can tell in Fort Lauderdale, would have been just, you couldn't count them. Like by the time you counted one little sector, you'd, uh, you'd realize that you'd lost count. You'd have to start over again. There's just too many. And now they're theorizing that there's a hundred billion galaxies filled with a hundred billion stars each. And you start doing the math. Like if you spent your whole life counting, you'd never get through with them. And that's kind of what God is saying. Like, you're you're worried that I'm going to be able to give you one descendant. Abram, look up. <laughs> you're not going to be able to count the numbers of descendants that I give you. Stop putting me in a box. Mm. Stop putting your goals so low or your expectations of me so low. You're, you're worried about one. I'm telling you it's going to be like the stars of the sky. And this is, this is one of the most impactful, important verses in the entire story of Abraham, if not the most important story, verse in the life of Abraham. It's verse 6, and it says, Abram believed the Lord, and God credited, credited, I have a hard time with that word. That's a tough one. <laughs> Abraham believed the Lord, and God credited it to him as righteousness. And so what does that what does that mean? What it means is Abraham put his trust in the Lord's promise and God said you're righteous in my sight. What this means is it's a it's a verse that when you get to the reformation, when you get to the apostle mm. Paul, when Paul is explaining that your salvation comes by faith alone, that it's not about your works, it's not about you being good enough, he goes back to Abram and points to this verse because remember Abraham has a mixed bag yeah he, he's gonna he sins before this he's got some really gross things that he does before this moment and he's gonna have some gross things that come after this moment and yet here it says he believed the Lord and God said all right I'm gonna credit that to your account and now I see you as righteous mm. in other words you're saved you're rescued you're worthy of eternal life with me you are righteous and cleansed and mine. Why? Because Abram believed the Lord, period, period. It doesn't say, and then Abram did a bunch of nice things and yeah. filled out his checklist. 
It's just he trusted the Lord's promise. And what was the promise? That he is going to send and make good on his promise to send a legacy, a, a, a lineage that will ultimately lead to the Messiah who will bless all the nations. And so that's one of the things also uh, people get confused about. Like, okay, if we're saved by Jesus now, you know, he came, he's crucified, dead, buried, yeah. resurrected, ascended into heaven, and we're saved because we put our trust in Jesus. How how was how were the people in the Old Testament saved? And here's your answer right here. Same way. Yeah. We are saved. We have salvation because we look back at what Jesus did and we put our trust in what Jesus has done. In the Old Testament, they were saved by looking at the promise of God to send a Savior of the world who would redeem all things and putting their trust in the Savior who was to come, who would come in the future. And so on both sides of the cross, you're saved by putting your trust in the promise of the Messiah. And here you see it with Abram. He believed God, and God credited it to him as righteousness. Yeah, I think it's cool. Say that word. Real credited. Quick. Credited. Yeah, it's it's a tough one. I thought you were saying it wrong, actually. I always want to say credited. Like, I yeah. throw in a, an extra. It sounds like you hang on it. You hang on that. I think it's cool how in all of this, even with Abram's complaint to God, God's still not chastising him. Mm-hmm. Right, he understands that if there's like he has true faith in God, and yet he still has this complaint, like, "Hey, God, in my faith, I'm still, I'm still trusting that you're going to do this, but I'm just saying it's not happening yet." And I think that's so cool that God doesn't be like, "Okay, bring your faith without questions, or bring your faith without mm-hmm. all of this stuff." Like, you just got to be on board, and which you know mm-hmm. is a good thing, but also it's just like, no, like he understands us in a sense, and he's looking at Abram in a very real situation, being like. All right, I know it doesn't look like things are happening mm-hmm. to you, but I see your faith, and I'm going to just rehearse what I've already done for you. And it's just the rehearsing of it all that I think you know God's so faithful to do to us mm-hmm. in the midst of everything. Yeah, and it's, uh, one of the things that I really love about this, and and Paul picks up on this in the New Testament, but Abram fails ahead of this. You know, God promised him descendants and land, and Abraham stutters like he's like oh, I'm not sure that I believe that he goes down to Egypt he makes a mess of things right after this we're gonna see he makes right after. a mess like right after <laughs> you're really true like next, next chapter. chapter next week um and why did like I love the fact that God is so good that when he gives us his word it's like he's saying you're not saved because of how good you have been yeah and and once I declare that you're saved you're not going to remain saved because of how good you're going to be. Yeah. And with Abraham, you get the perfect example. Like he stumbles before his salvation moment and he stumbles after his salvation moment. And it's not Abraham's goodness that is his security. It's God's faithfulness that says no matter what you do before and your past or in your future, mm. you're mine. Yeah. You do not lose your salvation because of your stumbles in faith. Like that's that's a comfort because we all have moments where our faith fails or stumbles or yeah. or lags and God's faithfulness is not called into question for those moments. It's a real comfort because we all have them, even pastors. So, verse 7 and this is where it, it starts getting really interesting and you're going to see some some correlations. So in the rest of this chapter in, in chapter 15, you're going to see language that is very much pointing your mind 
toward Moses and what happens in Egypt. And you've seen some of that already, right? Like Abraham's wife gets taken captive by Pharaoh and God unleashes plagues on Pharaoh to get her free. Well, like that should sound familiar because that's exactly what he does with the Israelites. But now here he's going to start using language that will become much more familiar in the days of, of Moses starting here in verse 7, where God then says, because you know, Abram believes God, God's responding. He says, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. Now, this is, this is formulaic. Like, if you read the Old Testament a lot, if I were to say to you, I am the Lord who brought you up out of, like, if all over the Old Testament, that's how God introduces himself, but he says Egypt, Egypt yeah. right? I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. But he's saying, hey, Abram, I've done the same for you because I'm the, God, I'm the Lord your God who brings you up out of your previous circumstances. I'm the one who calls you out of your former life. I'm the one who calls you out of your paganism and your idolatry and your bondage. That's who our God is. He is a God who calls us out of our prior circumstances. And so for Abram, the rest of the Bible is going to be, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt when he's talking to the Israelites. But he says to, to Abram here, I'm the Lord who brought you up out of Ur of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, to give you this land, to take possession of it. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? And so here, like, hear that because in verse 6, Abram is credited with salvation because of his faith. Two verses later, he's going, Still got questions. <laughs> yeah, like, uh, how can I know? Like, uh, you know, I'm in. Yeah, show me. I'm, I'm putting my life in your hands. Like, I'm hmm. pledging myself to you, but I still, like, how, how is this going to happen? And so the Lord said to him, here's where it gets yeah. really weird. It's not what you expected. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If I'm Abram, I'm like, what does this have to do yeah, with my question? Not but on I, your bingo card. Yeah. So the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. And Abram brought all these things to him, cut them in two, arranged the halves opposite of each other. The birds, however, he didn't cut in half. The birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. And so this is what I want you to imagine. So Abram takes these three different animals, a heifer, a goat, and a ram, and he's literally cutting them in half. Hot dog or hamburger? Hot dog or hamburger? I'm like, are we going like, like head, head to, to feet or like torso cut in half? I don't, I always imagine that we're going hot dog. Yeah, like I do from too. Head to you know where it's equal, it's yeah, symmetrical yeah, yeah. on both sides. Okay, I'm just trying to. That get would a be much harder to cut them in half That's, that way. And I'm thinking, what kind of tools does this guy have? <laughs> like, what is he? He's sawing. He's doing. He's yeah, yeah. He's I mean, doing something. Wow. Okay. But you know the rib cage. Anyway, we're not going to get into images. This. <laughs> we're, we're we're butchers. We know what we're talking about. So. So what he does is he takes half of the animal and he puts it on one side and he takes the other half of the animal and he puts it on the other side and it's like it's forming a pathway. Mm. It's it's a it's like a road almost. And so this is really 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 bizarre, right? Except in the ancient world this was something that was really common when people entered into covenants. And so you, there's there's parts elsewhere. If you go to Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah chapter 34, verse 18, it talks about how the Israelites violated their covenant with God even after, and it says they passed between the parts of the calf. And you're like, what does that mean? Passing between the parts of the calf. In the ancient world, 
it was like you were saying, okay, if you have two people that are coming together to form one covenant, then you take one animal and you divide them into two, and then both of the parties of the covenant would walk between the animals, and it was a way of symbolizing that if I break my word, if I break my promise, may I be like these animals. Hmm. And so may I may I be put to death, right? Yeah. And so when Abram calls God out in a sense and says, hold on a minute, like how can I know? How can I be certain? What assurance will you give me? All of a sudden, Abram's like, all right, we're, we're doing the thing, <laughs> you know? <laughs> this is the way that we form covenants and like there's no, there's no higher pledge I can make to you than a life and death pledge. And so, but you're not expecting what happens, right? It says, so Abram brought all these to him. He cut them in two and he arranged the halves opposite of each other. And the birds, he didn't cut in half. The birds of prey came down on the carcasses. Abram drove them away. Then it says, as sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep. And that that word is unique. It's the same word that's used uh, when Adam is put into a sleep. You don't find it elsewhere, but it's like, it's like a deep sleep, almost like death. It's, it's like like comatose kind of a feel to it, a deep sleep and a thick, dreadful darkness came over him. Can you think of another time where darkness is described as thick exodus Mm. plague, right? Okay. And so like all this is meant to be drawing your mind to exodus. So hang with, hang with me and hold on to that thought. So this thick and dreadful darkness came over him. And then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. What's he talking about? This is Egypt, right? Slavery. Your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. You remember like you did when you went down to Egypt and I punished Pharaoh with plagues and you came out with great possessions. Yeah, I'm going to do that again, except for all your descendants. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace. This is going to come after your lifetime, Abram, and you'll be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure, which is another part of this. God is going to say there's going to be a judgment that comes upon the Amorites when the Israelites return to the land and the Israelites are going to be God's way of judging the Amorites whose wickedness has not yet reached its full measure to where God is ready to judge them. So God has his timetable, and it's all laid out, and he knows the Amorites that are going to be conquered when they come back into the land are going to be at full wickedness when Joshua comes through. But it said, when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, this is where it gets really beautiful and wild. When the sun had set, and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed through the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, to your descendants, I will give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites, and there ends chapter 15, and you're thinking, what All right. in the world just happened? <laughs> and what just happened is amazingly beautiful. So not only does it continue the theme, so Abram sees, let, let's just, let me summarize real quick, because all that's confusing. Yeah. 
God says, part the carcasses, split them in half, make a road. Now, whoever walks down that road is the one who's saying, I, I'm willing to die if I fail to keep my end of the covenant, right? So then God appears to Abram, and he gives this vision of a smoking oven and a flaming torch, and they go between the parted carcasses. Well, what is that? That's What does it look like? A, a smoking oven and a flaming torch look a lot like a pillar of cloud, and a pillar of fire. And what is it that leads the Israelites out of Egypt? Through the parted Red Sea. Boom. So here you have God who's actually playing out the deliverance that he is going to do when he gets to Egypt and delivers his people out with this smoking oven, flaming torch symbolizing the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud. But what's wild about this is it's God the God of the universe who's saying, Abram, if I fail to keep my covenant with you, I'm willing to die. This is gospel. This is gospel big time. And so what you have in the ancient world, the, the, the Canaanites believed, and this is something that's going to be rich when you get to the crossing of the Red Sea, the Canaanites believed that body of waters were actually formed by their god of the sea, whose name was Yom. The Hebrew word for sea is actually Yom, and it comes from that. But Prince Yom was seen by the Canaanites as like the sea serpent, and he formed the seas, right? right. And so there was a battle between Baal and, and, and Yom, and Baal ends up smashing the sea serpent in the head. Hear that, right? Mm. Smash serpent in the head. And then he takes the sea serpent and he rips him in and apart and uses him to form the earth. And so when they go through the Red Sea, the Canaanites would have believed that a parted sea was like a sea serpent literally had been ripped in half. And so the parted waters are actually a parted carcass. And so as the flaming torch and the smoking oven of the Exodus go through there, it's literally carrying out what you see here in this passage. And then God is saying, okay, I'm entering into that covenant, but then the Israelites in that story follow with him. And so both of them are saying, I'll die if I fail to keep my end of the covenant. And right after this, now this is where it gets really good, but you got to hang with me. God then takes them almost immediately, like he's on a beeline to take the Israelites as they come through the Red Sea to get to Mount Sinai. And when he gets to Mount Sinai, now all of a sudden everything gets complicated because prior to Mount Sinai, every covenant that God had ever entered in with man was like, I'm going to do this for you. I mean, really stop and think about this for a moment. You go back to Adam and God makes a promise. What does he say? The seed of the woman will crush the head of the snake. What does Adam have to do to make that happen? Nothing. Nothing. Then you jump ahead to Noah. God has just judged the world, and he says, I'm going to put a rainbow in the sky, and I am pledging that I will never flood the world again. What what does Noah have to do to make God keep his word? Nothing. Nothing. Then you fast forward, and Abraham, here you have a promise. Through your descendants, the nations of the world are going to be blessed. Does that hinge on Abram being good enough? Nope. No, it's all God. And then he makes the same promise to Isaac and he makes the same promise to Jacob. And so here you have a unilateral covenant of grace where God is saying, regardless of what you do, I'm going to bring you salvation. I am going to make 
things beautiful and redeemed regardless of what you do, then you get to Sinai and the law gums everything up, (laughs) right? Because when you get to Sinai, God lays down the Ten Commandments and, and whatever it is, 613 different laws that are contained in the Torah. And God then comes to the people and he says, obey these and you live. But if you violate the law, you die, right? And all of the people, repeat, I think three times, all the people say, we will keep the entirety of this law. (laughs) Nice. And before God can even get down off the mountain, they're worshiping a golden calf and engaged in drunken orgies and all this stuff at at the golden calf and that fiasco. (laughs) So they they can't even last through that part before they've fallen. And so now you have this amazingly complicated deal where God, prior to Sinai, has been saying, I vow that no matter what, on my end, I'm going to redeem you, I'm going to rescue you, I am going to make sure that all of the nations are redeemed through my son. And then you get to Sinai, and it's like, if you're good enough. And now all of a sudden, God has made a unilateral promise, and now you have a bilateral covenant, except one end of that deal. God was faithful all through the Sinai covenant, but his people stink. <laughs> you know, we, yeah. we can't keep our end of the deal to save our lives, literally. It's the goal. <laughs> right? So what does God have to do? You've got, like, the unilateral covenant he's keeping, and, and he's vowing to Abraham in this moment, no matter what, I will lay down my life to keep my word to you, Abraham. But you get to the days of Moses, and God says, you got to do your end. Israel has to keep the law and be good enough. Otherwise, you die. So what's the solution? The only solution is Christ, mm. right? Yeah. Christ comes down, and the way that he lives his life is so absolutely intentionally echoing the entire narrative of the story of the Israelites. So remember when he's born, like you go to the days of Moses and you get this tyrant Pharaoh who's trying to kill all the baby boys. Well, what does that make you think of within the life of Jesus? Herod. Herod, right? Kill all the baby boys. And what has to happen? To spare his life, Jesus goes down to Egypt. Hmm, that sounds familiar. And then he's brought up out of Egypt when there's a death of that tyrant. Gee, that sounds familiar. And where Moses is the lamb, has a lamb that's going to be slain, Jesus becomes the lamb that's going to be slain. And Moses gives the law of God on a mountain. Jesus gives the Sermon on the Mount where he reinterprets and expands upon that law. Moses has the 12 tribes of Israel that he's calling and allotting all of Israel to. What does Jesus do? He is going after the 12 apostles. You have Moses baptized in the Red Sea going through that to find a new beginning. Jesus launches his ministry when he goes through the waters of the Jordan. And you find all of, you know, Moses is going to to have 40 days without food or water as he's in the wilderness. And Jesus is going to have 40 days without food and water in the wilderness. And where the Israelites stumble and descend in the wilderness, Jesus is going to be tempted by the devil in the wilderness. And he stands like everything about Israel's history where they fall repeatedly again and again, Jesus comes and he perfects again Mm. and again and again. And it's like he is living in himself 
all of the ways that Israel has failed throughout the centuries, and Jesus is saying, I'll do it for you. Here's my perfect righteousness. I'm accomplishing everything where you failed. And so now get this. God himself in the flesh steps into the world to become Israel for Israel. He becomes Israel. That's why the in the Old Testament, Israel is my son, you know? That's what, the way God refers to Israel. And now Jesus, literally his son, has perfected every piece where Israel failed. He's taking Sinai and he's saying, okay, on behalf of my people, I am fulfilling all of it. Where they have failed, I am fulfilling it. But now there's still a problem. You have So he gives us our righteousness, but now we have the problem of all of our sin. If God is just, like in the law, it says he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. So what has to happen? The cross. Yeah. So he's given us our perfect righteousness. He's made good on that covenant. But now what about our sin? He goes to the cross and he will take all of our failures and all of our shame and all of our guilt upon himself. And what you see God doing here in Genesis 15, where he looks at Abram and he says, you want to know how committed I am to carrying out my covenant to you, Abram? I'm willing to die. And when you get to the cross, the same God who went between the parted carcasses of Genesis 15 is saying, this is the fulfillment. I told you I would die to keep my promise. I'm dying to keep my promise. That's how faithful wow. and true our God is. Yeah, and even dies between, this is, carcasses is a bad word for two people. Yeah, I mean, it is. But, but he's between two carcasses at his death. That's right. And that that's not an accident. You know, yeah, he's he, got... He walked it. He literally the, did. The dead thieves on both sides mm. as he dies. I mean, it's a picture that's hearkening your mind back to Genesis 15. It's, it's Yeah, because the two other people, now that I've never put these two together, because no one's ever told me about it, <laughs> <laughs> I would never put them together. But it is interesting that there are those two, you know, there are two people surrounding Jesus. That seems like a weird detail to add. That seems like a weird moment mm-hmm. that's like, oh... Here's Jesus. Yeah. King of Kings. And here's just two random guys, and we're going to include them in all this. Yeah, the way that the Bible stitches things together like that, it's 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 so poetic. Our God's not giving us the Bible as like some manual. It's it's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful story. And so even that, like it, there's actually more to it than just, you know, having two parted carcasses on either side of you. If you go back to the garden, we talked about this when we did Genesis uh, chapter two, I think in the podcast way, way, way earlier months ago or years ago, even now. <laughs> but if you were to describe Eden and, and the, the landscape of Eden, it's God who's on top of a mountain. Eden is a mountain. We know that for sure. Um, Ezekiel calls it that. So you have God on top of a mountain and four headwaters or headwaters lead to four rivers coming down. So there's a river coming down from God on top of the mountain and there's two trees in the middle of this garden. You have the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? And then you have man dwelling with God. And if you look at heaven, hang on to that picture. But if you fast forward and go to the end and you go to Revelation, it's described in much the same way where you have God dwelling on Mount Zion and his throne is kind of the source of the river of life that flows out from him. And you have you know the tree of life that it says is growing on either side of the river. So it's no longer a tree of life and death. 
Now the tree of life is growing out on both sides, but you have trees on either side of God, right? And a river that brings life to the ends of the world coming down from this mountain. So the the story of Scripture begins with God on a mountain between two trees dwelling with man with a river that brings life to the ends of the world. And it ends with that same picture. And in the middle, you find Calvary. And what is that? Well, it's God as a man who is surrounded by two trees on top of a mountain. And there's a river that is flowing from God that is going to bring life to the ends of the earth, except it's not a river of water. It's a river of blood that's going out to redeem and to bring life to the ends of the earth. And it's like you could read through these stories and you'll, you'd skip right past that, but God, every one of these little details, he's poetically telling you that the God of creation and the God of our ultimate paradise is weaving this together, all pointing to his son. Because without that middle mountain where the Lord is between hmm. two crosses, two trees, pouring out his blood for the life of the earth, there's no hope of paradise. It's what holds creation and redemption together. He redeems it all. So all that to say, the Bible was just written by a bunch of people that were faking all these stories. Yeah, right? that's right. Yeah, that's right. They just happened to yeah, stumble upon. Yeah, this is upon. not inspired. Definitely not. <laughs> no, they just happened to stumble upon. <laughs> all. Yeah. They were really good readers. Yeah, and they, yeah, and they, really know, they creative. All, all of these authors just keep harmonizing with yes. the same themes, not knowing. No, thousands that, of years have passed. Yeah, you mm-hmm. know, Jesus is going to come and he's going to do these things. Like, the, it is so brilliant. But if you read the Bible without recognizing the heart of the Savior and and the fact that this covenant of grace is the driving thing. It's all meant to point you to Jesus, all of it. Yeah. But if you read the scriptures without those lenses, you'll you'll be like, this is weird, <laughs> you know. Okay, God told Abram to cut up some animals and then some weird torch in an oven went between him. Like, what does that mean? Like, no, you'll you'll totally miss it. You'll absolutely miss it if you're not looking at that story and saying, okay, how does this point us to Jesus? Because when you point it to Jesus, it all comes to life because even, even the Red Sea crossing is pointing you ultimately to Jesus. Yeah. And like you said, we can't read it like a manual or like some textbook because there is a beauty to all of it that sometimes we reduce the Bible to something that's not. So then we're like, this doesn't make any sense, but it's, we're not visual. We're not imaginative there's no creativity really sometimes when we read it but, mm-hmm. but god's doing all of that and the people who read these scriptures in in the you know the old covenant times they understood this they saw the imagery so like if open if you open your bibles to psalm 74 and you go to verse uh, 12 through uh, 14 like they're picking up on some of the stuff that we're reading uh, like get this in verse 12 it says but you O god are my king from of old, from eternity. You bring salvation on the earth. And so the psalmist is like, okay, how do you do that? Listen to this. It says, it was you who split open the sea by your power. And clearly it's referencing the Red Sea, but get get what it goes next. It says, you broke the heads of the monsters in the waters. It was you who crushed the heads of Leviathan and gave him as food to the creatures of the desert. So why is it saying that? Remember how we talked about the Red Sea when it's parted? It would have been seen as as carcasses to the Canaanites because they believed that was their Prince Yom, the sea serpent god. When they're writing the Psalms much later, they're recognizing that God is making fun of all of these pagan myths. And he does that repeatedly, just like with Abraham, you know, God is showing Nana to be a, a 
garbage God. And he'll do that in the Egyptian plagues. All of the 10 plagues are tearing down the Egyptian pantheon and showing all their gods to be garbage. In the crossing of the Red Sea, he is showing that the Canaanite gods are garbage, but God is playing it out, showing you, no, I'm, I'm not just a God of the myths. I'm the God who actually breaks the sea open and gives my people a brand new beginning. And so like, I guess the bottom line, as we're looking back at Genesis 15, we just see the goodness of God. Again, remember, what did Abraham do to warrant all of the favor of God? He believed. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's really all he had to do was to trust God and God did everything. And then you see God who's willing to keep his word, to keep his covenant even at the expense of his own life when we fail and mm. spit in his face and walk away. And it's this verse when you get to Paul's great conversion. You know, here you have Paul in the New Testament, who's a Pharisee, a legalist, who's all about, you know, making sure that people are good enough and all that. After he has his conversion, this story with Abraham in this chapter is massively important. And so Hmm. when you get to Romans chapter four, listen to what Paul says when he's talking about our salvation. He says, what then shall we say that Abraham our forefather according to the flesh, discovered in this matter about faith versus works. He says, if in fact Abraham was justified by works, which means if Abraham was justified because God looked at him and was like, oh man, you're a really good guy. You do lots of good stuff and I'm going to give you heaven because you're good enough. If that was the truth, then Abraham had something to boast about, but not before God. He says, what does scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And then Paul goes on. He says, now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. Let me summarize. (laughs) What Paul is saying is salvation is a gift. It comes because God said, I will pay the cost It's unilateral. My grace is offered to you, and the only thing I ask in return is your trust, your faith. And that's where, like, when you get to the Reformation and and the Reformers are like sola fide, which means faith alone, like, that's the only thing you bring to the equation of your salvation, and you see it really brilliantly demonstrated here by Abram who's a mess before this moment, and he will be a mess after this moment. But when he places his trust in the promise of God to bring forth salvation, God says, done, done. It is credited to you as righteousness. And so for everybody within the sound of our voice, if you have not done that, if you haven't looked at all the promises of God where his son fulfills this, by going to a cross because you never will be able to measure up. You're just not perfect. Like if you could be worthy of God, that God is not worthy of your worship. You know, like he's so far beyond us and yet he loves us to such infinite measure that he's not only our shield, right? He not only comes and says all of your bad stuff that that brings condemnation on you, that, that warrants your judgment, I will stand in front of you to be your shield. I'll take the arrows. I'll take the cross. I am your shield. 
but I'm also your great reward. Mm. I give myself to you entirely and all my infinite inheritance and all of all of who I am is yours if you will but grab hold by faith of all the promises that I've made to you. That's what we see in Abram, and that is the offer that is perpetually before us. Yeah, Grab his promise by faith, and he will credit it to you as righteousness, and everything that he is is yours. Amen. All right. Well, I hope you enjoyed our time together today. Next week, we will be jumping in as Abraham... <laughs> Back at it. Good grief. It really is a roller coaster. When you're reading the story of Abraham, he goes from being like, this guy's amazing. Oh, oh, this guy's amazing again. Oh, you know, like, and next week we're going to see Abram uh, choosing some, some shameful things again. It's a poor choices in the next chapter. And guess what? Still, still saved. Still saved. God is still faithful when Abram is not. Thank the Lord. Because we too are roller coasters. <laughs> of good and bad. And God never, 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 never gives up on his faithfulness. He will die for you and did. Amazing. All right. So thank you so much for joining us today. We will be back. I already did this part. How? What's the next part? Uh, bye. All right. Bye. Yeah. Have a good week. See God you. bless everyone. <laughs> We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater. water.